and welcome to Our Coal Conversations with me, your host, Jay Howard. I'm an instructor in the Department of Communication at Missouri State University, and this podcast is about teaching and learning in the arts and letters. Today, I bring you a conversation with Mike Chisniewski, who is an associate professor in the Department of English. He's also the coordinator of the Creative Writing Program and the editor-in-chief of Moon City Review, which is a literary journal in an academic small press and is one of the focal points of today's conversation. I ask Mike about his work on the journal and also about his work more broadly. We chat about the National Endowment for the Arts. We talk about Chicago and Wrigley Field. We talk about his time at Bowling Green University in Ohio as the co-editor of the Mid-American Review along with his wife, Karen Krago. We talk about the history of Moon City Review, including some possibly apocryphal history. As you'll hear throughout the conversation, a lot of people work on Moon City Review and Press, and there are especially many opportunities for students to get involved, undergraduates, graduates, GAs, and interns. On the topic of student involvement, we talk about several classes, among them English 540-640, which is a small press production class that Mike developed. Finally, we talk about the concept of literary citizenship. There's more to being a writer than just writing, although admittedly that is a big part of it. It also matters a great deal to participate in the community of which we are a part. So for example, if you're a writer, it's important to participate in the community of writers. Participation can take many forms. Sometimes it's as simple as the act of reading. I think of it like building up karma. If a writer wants people to read them, then it makes sense for that person to take the time to read other people. There's other ways to participate as well. Mike and I talk about supportive community building activities, such as attending and hosting literary events, such as readings, subscribing to journals, buying a book by a first time author, and so on. An example of this kind of literary citizenship is a project called Story 366. Story 366 is a blog that Mike started wherein he read a new short story collection and then wrote a blog post about that collection every day for 366 days straight during 2016 and then again during 2020. Now, Mike says he doesn't read every single story in all of those collections, but still it strikes me as an inspiring as well as a Herculean project. Our conversation spans many other topics as well. By the way, Mike is the author of three short story collections, and his stories have appeared in many, many journals and anthologies. So to start our conversation, we chat about his writing. In my own reading of some of Mike's stories, I was struck by their metaphorical quality. As Mike puts it, nothing is ever really about what it seems to be about on the surface. There's always something else going on as well. I'm excited to bring you my R. Cole conversation with Mike Chisniewski. Thanks for listening. I mentioned on my email, I have got a hold of my copy of the Moon City Review and also found new stories from the Midwest 2012. Oh, wow. Where I had that, uh, where I read The Amnesiac in the Maze. And also in my research, I, I heard a reading by you of the um, elephants in our bedroom story. 
And I know you placed uh, pieces in more than 50 journals. That was when I found that figure. So I'm sure it's in excess of that now. Um, but I really, um, really enjoyed what little of the, the stories that I have been able to find either for free on the internet or in the library uh, <laughs> and read. They have a, um, like, a, I don't know, a, me a metaphorical multi-layered quality to them. Things like uh, an elephant in a room or being in a maze and not remembering your identity all have, all work on a lot of levels, the story itself, and then the reader can kind of find themselves in the story. So yeah, I really enjoyed them. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, those are two pretty good examples. I mean, I mean, I wish everything I did kind of worked as well as those two pieces, but uh, yeah, those are, yeah, I think that's what I go for. I mean, I think I try to go for something that is both entertaining to me, but also interesting. Mm -hmm. When I, when I just kind of, I mean, that's how I work is like, I kind of get inspired because I'm kind of have like a question or I look at something and I'm kind of like intrigued by it. And so then I turn that into fiction where other people do other things with that, whether they write papers or do interviews or make sculptures or something like that. But like, oh, okay, um, that's kind of how I work is just like, I get something that seems like kind of ironic and funny to me in weird, like I have a story and this is one, a, a good example is like, you know, a, a kid whose, whose father has died. He has a, he has an imaginary friend and, um, the mom starts like having an affair with the kid's imaginary friend. Oh my it's gosh. Like, it's like, yeah, that's the, that doesn't make any sense because it's an imaginary friend, but I like that popped into my head and I'm like, Oh, that's hilarious. And it doesn't make any sense. And it's crazy. But of course, like the mom would be kind of jealous in that situation. Like, mm -hmm. Oh, well he has somebody like, why can't I have somebody? And mm -hmm. like, Oh, what if he's, really handsome and like what if the imaginary friend is like you know johnny depp like he's not it's not johnny depp but it's like what if he's really handsome and suave and like you know i, I might want to fuck him so it's like so i thought that was funny so that's like what i it's like usually like i don't like oh i'm gonna sit down and have a great idea for a story that's like one of those things where it's like i walk i'm walking to campus and while i'm waiting to cross like national avenue i'm like standing there like not paying attention and like I think of ideas that's usually where it happens or like the shower I keep on saying though sooner or later I'm going to get hit I know in the middle of the street I cross I cross National Avenue a couple times a day on average and it's like I stand in that median right by the welcome center there because I live right in the round tree there and like I'm like yeah I'm gonna be like having the greatest idea of my life and I'm gonna just like walk off the curb in front of a bus like I should go write that down and then like so I I, I need to be careful with that you mentioned uh, you grew up in the city. Was, was that Chicago or? I grew up in, I didn't really grow up in Chicago. I grew up in the suburb of mostly like Calumet City, Illinois. Um, okay. But then I've lived in the city and stuff like that. So yeah, so I'm from Chicago is what I basically tell people. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, people can, uh, people can be from wherever they, it doesn't have to be where they're born, right? It's wherever they identify as where they're from. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Chicago is interesting here because people have a weird, the, the, there's kind of a weird attitude towards it. Um, there's kind of this, there's the whole Cubs Cardinals thing. So like I got a lot of that early and then the Cubs beat the Cardinals in a playoff series. And then that was like, that was, that was really weird here. Cause everybody was like, Oh, you're a Cubs fan. That's so cute. I like you. You're so nice. Like, like Chicago was their pet dog in that, in that reference. But then like, 
Then the Cubs won that series in 2015, and they were like, wait, no, 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 no. That is not what was supposed to happen. Like, you are no longer cute and adorable as, like, <laughs> You mentioned the Cubs, and that Wrigley Field has been a part of your life for a long time. You have, I think it's listed on your social media as well, that you are a vendor at Wrigley Field. Yes. Um, yeah, and you asked about that, and it's like, yeah, I started in 1989. I was 15. Um, I was supposed to be 16. I lied about my age. I literally put the wrong year on an a-, a job application because my brothers work there and they're like, yeah, he's, he could come with us. He can hop in the car and like come with us and we'll take him to Wrigley Field. He'll sell like hopping peanuts. So my brother did that. He's like, and I'm like literally standing there and he's like, oh, you have to be 16. And there's like a woman like smoke, like chain smoking cigarettes, like watching me <laughs> my paperwork. She's been there since like, you know, the Cubs last won the World Series. She's been working in that office like in 1908. And like, and she's just like, I think she even said like, whoa, instead of putting 1973, put 1972. And I'm like, okay, so I lied at a job applications. <laughs> Like, welcome to the world. So, yeah, I started doing that. And then uh, I just kind of always did it because it was really easy. It's like, oh, what a cool, like, high school summer job. And then it was like, hey, what a cool job. Like, I think if I leave right after high school, I can still make it to, like, night games. And I'll go to the game, like, tonight and, like, work the Cub game and get home at midnight and go to school tomorrow. Like, I started thinking that was a good idea. And then I'll, like, work through college. And I put my – and I didn't – I put myself through college like that. Oh, wow. But then it was like, I, I, I kind of moved, I moved to Ohio for grad school. And it's like, well, this is still cool, a cool summer job. Like I can still like make some money when I come home. And then one year I didn't do it at all. Like one year, I think I worked one weekend. I like worked three games just to make enough money to pay my union dues for the year. And everyone's like, hey, are, did you quit? Are you coming back? And I'm like, no, I'm just going to work a little bit this year. And then I just kind of always held on to it. Uh, and then I know I came back to a bigger my father died and I went and I moved back and kind of helped take care of my mom and I was there for a whole summer and then I kind of just got in the swing like hey I could drive in from Ohio and work a few games on the weekend make a lot of quick money pay off my bills and so then I just never really quit and then I moved to Missouri and I'm like well I don't want to quit this because when I moved here that's when the Cubs were starting to like put that like we're going to go to the world series soon team together. So like, you know, obviously the living in Missouri and working in Chicago, that's not really what I can do. So we, we did it like where we moved to Chicago for a couple, like we will move there for a month. One time we got a sublease and stuff. And I worked like, you know, a few home stands and I'm like, Oh, cool. I I'm keeping my job, but I still live in Missouri. And then that's just become less and less possible as time has gone by. Like I, I think I worked three games in 2019 because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I don't really have time this year. Maybe we'll get a place next year again. We'll do a sublease. And then COVID hit, and then there was no games in mm. 2020. And then they started late this year, and there was all this new training, and you had to do all this stuff. And I just never did it last year. And so I'm actually at the point where I need to make that decision probably finally for this year. Like either I'm going to do it again or I'm not ever going to do it again. Cause I, I have to like, Hey, you have to start paying your union dues again. This is like, we're kind of back. Like this isn't like COVID thing anymore. So I think I'm, I'm 90% sure I'm probably retired. Okay. Okay. Cause I don't really see how that works really right now. Cause my wife works full time now when she was teaching, it was easy because she had summers off and I'd be like, Hey, I'm going to go for the weekend, you know, drive to Chicago, visit family and do it. And then, but no, now it's really not. 
plus all my family, like I used to have like my siblings, I have six siblings and they'd be like, Hey, I'm coming into Chicago. I'm going to drop my kids off at your house for the weekend so I can go work at Wrigley field. And like my, my siblings have kind of outaged that they're not really like, they're kind of like, no, we can't really take care of small boys anymore. We're, we're trying to watch Jeopardy and have dinner at three o'clock. Like no, and so they're they're all older than me. And I hope this gets that part gets in to the interview. That's not a callback, but like yeah. So it's just kind of not convenient. Like I if you know, I tell people like yeah, if I lived in Chicago, I'd love to keep doing that. It's a lot of fun. But no, I don't. I live in Missouri, so it's all yeah, right. yeah. So ninety percent. There's still a chance. Yeah, I'm probably ninety percent. The funniest thing about that job is when my, I have a book called Chicago Stories and I did an interview, I think it was with the Chicago Tribune and the angle that reporter took, I remember doing that phone interview and she's like, so like when you're selling to somebody, you're kneeling down in front of them and you're pouring the beer, they're telling stories to like you or to people, you know, and you're paying attention. And I'm like, uh, sometimes, sometimes we talk, sometimes they're just watching the game. It's like, but you can hear them telling the stories and her assumption and the angle she was going for in the interview was the stories that I wrote, I got because I was a beer vendor and I overheard people. Like I, I wasn't making things up originally on my own. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. That I, the only reason I was a writer is because I was going to the ball games and overhearing like eavesdropping on fans telling stories. And I was telling those stories and it's like, <laughs> no, like, no, like this. And like, and she clearly never really read a word of my work. If you read my work, you wouldn't be like, oh, wow, somebody, somebody at a ball game was buying a beer and talking about this elephant that they won in a card game. And like, uh-huh. and that beer vendor wrote a story about it. Like, it was really weird because she was really stuck on that angle. She's like, but you don't get like any of your ideas from like vending because she, she like had it in her mind that that's like, what my writing process was because interesting, there was a guy on my press who was a cab driver in Chicago and he wrote his book and it was all about his run-ins with people in his cabs like the things that had happened and I kind of wondered if she had like interviewed that guy or saw that guy's book and was like oh well yeah you must do the same thing because because his book is that okay his, his book is entirely like inspired by like things he's heard in the cab and you know people just doing like people like you know there's things like people are shooting heroin and having sex in the back of his cab for mm-hmm. like a two mile ride and it's like no i don't have that man like no one's no one's given me like my good stuff or like on a seat at a ball game yeah like for the 30 seconds i interact with them i'm not getting all my good ideas so no. now i will like conversely people watching is it's like an infinite well of um material in in my in my experience anyway um and I, I assume you get some people watching in uh, at all, all, all kinds of places, whether you're crossing the street or um, at Wrigley Field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely that where there's like somebody who just does this. Like I actually started a beer vending novel and I wrote a first chapter and I actually published it in a good magazine. And then there was this expectation like, oh, you're going to write the rest of that beer vendor novel. But I don't know. I think I was too close to it because I was trying to do like what I never do and just write about something too literally like, well, this is how beer vending works. And like, okay, this is how this works where it's like, <clears throat> that's not really what I do. Like, like you said, I do like kind of like conceptual metaphorical things. So just writing about like a real place. That novel project, was it the one mentioned in the uh, National Endowment of the Arts interview page that I ran across? Probably. Cause I think that's what I submitted. Cause I, that was when I was full blown, like, I'm going to write this beer vending novel about this composite of these guys that I knew. 
And then I really kind of like, after I wrote a couple chapters, like really hit a wall with it because like, this isn't really what I do. Mm-hmm. And so while, while Chicago stories, 40 dramatic fictions was published in 2012, the novel is, uh, it was shelved and you moved on to the next project instead. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the timeline. That was a while ago. Like, I think I was going to work on the novel before that. Cause yeah, I think the NEA came in 2009 ish. And that's what I was, that's what I like when I turned in that in that application, that's what the project was. And that was a big part of my manuscript. Fascinating. And then luckily the NEA doesn't be like, Hey, we're following up on this. Did you, did you ever finish that beer vendor novel? Cause uh, if not, we want our money back. Uh, luckily they don't, they don't do that. So good, good. <laughs> yeah. It was easier for me to write one page stories about Chicago than it was to write yeah. 280 pages about people I really knew. Maybe if I leave and I keep saying this, maybe if I leave from vending and I remove myself from that for a while, I can come up with something to write about instead. I see. Because that's what I have to do. I have to make it about something else. If I just make it about beer vending, I probably won't do it. But if I make it about a beer vendor who's also like a diamond smuggler or, you know, somebody who's overcome his like, I don't know, he has leprosy, then like, oh, okay, well, that's I I can write about that and just throw the beer vending stuff in. Because like nothing's really about what it seems to be about. Like baseball movies aren't really about baseball. They're about like something going on in that character's life okay or right right. anything anything like or the economy in the case of the big short yeah yeah yeah. it's not really about like that so you had you mentioned that you had moved for grad school and this takes me to the question about the mid-america review which will eventually get us to moon city review because let's see mid-america review is housed at bowling green in Ohio, and you became the editor at the Mid-America Review there for a number of years. Is that right? Yep. I think it's one of those, it, it was a timing thing where I was there and I was working on the journal and then the person who was editor left. Okay, okay. And then like, it's one of those things where it's like, I'll fight off the exactly zero other people that want to take on that huge responsibility so I can take it on. Well, it helps to be in the right place at the right time, I guess, but it also helps to have the have the credentials and skills <laughs> to make yourself eligible in the first place. Sure, sure, sure. If you want to put that, sure. <laughs> credentials and skills. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a thing, I think, like with anything, because that was there, especially a, a completely volunteer thing, where they had somebody who was an instructor there, and he was doing the journal because he really wanted to do the journal. And he taught me a lot. He was a, he was a poet named George Looney, who just wanted to do the journal and wanted to do it right and wanted to represent the school and and make a good literary journal product and teach students how to do that. So I learned that from him. And, you know, after I was there for a couple few years, you know, he was moving on. He got a, he, he kind of did the same thing I did years later where he, he was an instructor doing all the stuff with all these credentials. So he went and got a professor job at another school. So he did that and handed the journal off to me. Kind of, there was a guy in between a professor who took over as an overseer for a year, but he really didn't want anything to do with doing anything. That was very clear that we were just supposed to report to him. Hmm. And like, and so then after a while it was, yeah, we just said like, well, we'll just take over because you're not really interested in doing anything. So yeah, so that was around 2000, like after a few years of shuffling around. And then I was the editor there for, I guess, 12 years along with my wife, Uh, Karen. Karen plays a big role in most of this stuff. 
she she came into school right after I did, and she was working, and then we were co-editors for a long time until we left there. Okay. You mentioned, so you had a mentor who loved running the press and the journal and wanted wanted to do it right and do it well. And so then if we fast forward in the story, you're now the editor-in-chief of the Moon City Review in Moon City Press at Missouri State. And so I wanted to ask, how, how did the experience at the former journal inform what you do here at Missouri State? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, I think that's why I got hired at Missouri State is because I had that editorial background and that's what they were looking for. Because the the model for how Moon City Press was run, I think they were looking for to do something else with it. Mm. Like they had an idea and they tried it for a few years and then they realized that that wasn't sustainable. Mm. So can you talk, talk more think, about the old model and the new model? Well, I think, well, Moon City Review started out as a student literary journal, like a lot of magazines do. Where it's like, hey, we're going to put this together, you know, kind of like almost like a letterpress project. I'm not really sure exactly when that stopped and when that started and how they made the journal back then. But yeah, there's volumes, there's copies on our shelves in our office of these old journals that were student journals. Um, there's a rumor kind of like legend tall tale going around that there was even a point where like the, the person though, there was like an instructor a person who was the faculty advisor of it. He wasn't getting enough work for the journal. And, and again, this is the, it might be apocryphal. It might be a tall tale, but like he, he actually just to fill the magazine once or twice, he actually wrote pieces and made up student names, like fake student identities. And then like, you know, here's a poem about like a blackbird, you know, on, on a smokestack. And then like would make up a student name and a little like two sentence biography to put in the back just to have like filler <laughs> stuff for like the magazine. So obviously I think people realize that wasn't working. I, I, I have no idea if that's true. And I have no, I think all the people who can confirm that are gone by this point. Um, but like, <laughs> So in those days, it was all Missouri State students contributing, and whereas the other model is Missouri State students, people uh, affiliated with Missouri State are the only people explicitly barred from submitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a transformation there. So it's like, I think they went to some point, but there's there's a couple professors that are really key, key here. Uh, Dr. Jim Baumlin and Dr. Lynette Cadle were here, and uh, Lynette actually went to grad school with me and my wife. She was in my wife's poetry class at Bowling Green. Um, and then she went on and got a PhD in RETCOMP. And she, she was a RETCOMP professor here. And she's just retiring after the semester. But she was here. And, and Jim Baumlin is just this huge, creative, positive force here. And he wanted to do a press. So somehow, and, I, and again, the, this is foggy for me, but he kind of wrestled that like, well, here's a, here's a magazine called Moon City Review that prints student work and it's kind of run by a student, a faculty advisor and students work on it. I think we're going to make a press called Moon City Press and we're going to put out Ozark Studies books on it. I gotcha. And so this is around like the mid aughts where he started doing that, where they started doing nonfiction books, some by outside authors. Uh, Jim is good at making these anthologies of like Ozark's topics um, that are more academic books where he has people he knows writing articles. Sometimes he involves students with it. So he, he does a really good job with that. Um, and so there's these Ozark Studies books, but then they also printed some poetry books and they printed a couple novels in that time where they're like, yeah, we're going to do other things as long as it's Ozarks related. Uh, somehow, and I'm not sure the connection to this day, but there's a, 
there's a poetry book by Burton Raffle on our press. And Burton Raffle is best known for translating like Beowulf. Like he he's like okay. the until Seamus Haney came out with, with one like 20 years ago. Like the Burton Raffle translation of Beowulf in the English was the one that we all bought in grade school. I mean, that's had to have sold millions and millions of copies of like of a book and i'm sure nice but somehow we have a book of poetry by him it's kind of <laughs> like i don't know if it's quite like oh well we have like the jimmy stewart book of poetry or the you know like that or it's like well yeah he's really famous but not for that but yeah so we have that so there was all these books on and then like with moon city review they did a project where they i think it basically came down to nobody wants to take this over full time this journal and and jim had the idea it's like well what if we do this what if we rotate the editorship of Moon City Review to a different faculty member every year? Oh, wow. And they, can, and they can literally do whatever they want with it. So, like, the first person to do it was a creative writer, and he just did, like, creative writing. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to do creative writing because it's a literary journal. But then some academic types, like lit people, did it. And they're like, well, this year, Moon City Review is going to be an academic journal with, like, paint with, like, you know, articles about like this academic topic and then next year oh well a poet took over this again it's going to be a poetry journal again and so next year it's going to be an academic journal again so i think that worked because people got to do kind of like a project and get an editing project in Mm -hmm. but i think it lacked real identity Mm -hmm. where it's like what's moon city review because i actually before i ever had any inkling that i was moving here or coming to springfield to live Lynette Cato had me in to read for my first book when my first book came out and that was 2009. So I came here in 2009, did a reading and they're like, Hey, we have a journal here that we do a new journal we're doing called Moon City Review. And I'm like, okay. And like, and they're like, will you give us a piece? Will you send us a piece? So I did. I'm like, okay, I'll send you a piece. So I sent them a short piece and they published it and then it came out and I realized I was kind of mostly the only outside person in there. Everything else was by students and faculty and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm in their student journal. That's unusual. Okay. Okay. Usually I don't go to universities and then they're like, hey, we have our student journal, but we have a place for you. (laughs) So, and, and it was all good. Like I have that publication on my list and it's a good story and that's all fine. Um, but yeah, so then 2012, I get hired here. And one of the, and in the, in the job description is like, they want a fiction writer, but the, the secondary emphasis is on editing and publishing. I'm like, oh, well, I have that because I run Mid-American Review. And so I got the job. And then I, I came in, it's like, well, I'm not running a magazine anymore. What a great relief off of my plate. Like, and then I was on Labor Day of that first semester. So I was here like a week and it's like that three-day weekend and I was in a computer lab because I didn't have internet at home yet. I lived in an apartment. Like, I'm like, I'm going to go to campus and check email because that's what I have to do for my job. And I was in Chief Hall's computer lab and uh, Dr. Linda Moser, she was supposed to be the next one up in the, I'm a faculty member editing Mid-America or Moon City Review. She's like, I don't really want to do this. Do you want to just take over Moon City Review forever right now? And it's like, that's the short of it was like, hey, you know, eventually you were probably going to take this over. Let's just make it right now. So <laughs> there was literally like a week where I was like, cool, I'm not in charge of a magazine for the first time since I was a freshman in college. Nice. And then 
no, I'm, I am because I did journals as an undergrad too. Like, cool. Like I have this relief where I don't have these like deadlines and all these things to do. And it's like, but that lasted like exactly like a week. And then like Tuesday, it's like, okay, well, let's start doing that. Um, so then I was in charge and I, it was very clear that like, I was going to do this. Like, that's probably what they brought me in for. And I'm like, okay, well, if that's what you brought me in for. I can't really say no. Um, I probably could have for at least a year and said like, Hey, why don't I do this next year? You do this. Yeah. Let me cast my breath. Yeah. And like, he was Linda Moser was going to do like a world literature thing where she was going to get articles about world literature. Oh, cool. And they kind of had announced that in the previous issue, like, Oh, the next issue world literature. So I was thinking I was going to have to make a magazine about world literature. And then they quickly were like, no, do whatever you want. But like I had caveats where it's like, well, what do we want to do? Like we need to establish identity. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what I think you're lacking is like, sometimes this is a literary journal. Sometimes it's a literary journal that publishes your own students. And sometimes it's a journal that like literature professors publish article, like academic articles in that are like scholarly reviewed and, you know, they're trying to get this to count as like an article for their like tenure and promotion and stuff. And yeah, yeah. I'm like, I don't know anything about that. Like I can't do that. So we need to pick a lane and just stick in it because like the only way this is going to work and be successful is if you just do something and do it like that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of journals having, having guest editors, you know, for various issues and stuff, but, but the, they do that after they have a established identity, you know, people kind of know the overall uh, lane, like you said, well, how would you describe, um, the identity that has developed um, that you've cultivated for Moon City Review? Well, I mentioned uh, the, the big thing was, it's like, I'm like, I really think we shouldn't be putting a lot of effort and money into a journal that's not going to just have student work in it, mm. like from our school, because we could do that. And for one, we could do that really cheaply. Two, you don't really need me to do that. Like students should run that. Like I can be the advisor and be like, oh yeah, I'll sign the paperwork for your funding and help you get that but you don't want me running that. Like students should run student journals. Like when I ran my student journal as an undergrad, I didn't have like a professor in charge who was hired to come in and run our student undergraduate literary journal. That didn't, that's not what happened. I'm like, so like I need to either be, or we need to do like a national literary journal, like mid American review. Like, do you want that? And they're like, yeah, we would love that. We would love that. And I'm like, well, my, and the only caveat was, it's like, I can't have people from Missouri state in it. Yeah because that really hurts the reputation of the journal. Cause then outside readers are like, well, what is this? Is this their department literary journal or is this like a national international thing? So right, right. there was a little bit of brushback to that was like where people were like, well, I, I'm a faculty member here. Or I'm a student. I want to continue to publish my work in Moon City Review. I want that opportunity. And I'm like, look, there's a million other journals out there. Let's teach you how to publish in those journals and not worry about like you publishing in the journal that's run, you know, in the office down the hall. Yeah. Because it's, it's just about like uh, nepotism. Like it looks, Mm. it doesn't look good. Like I know there's a, and I won't name the names, but there's journals that do that. There's a university press in at a very major state university that they run this big, beautiful press, but like most of their books are by their alum and their students. And it's Mm. like that press is like, okay, well, yeah, you have that book on that press, but that's because you went there. It's not because, you know, you won that, pro- that, the, that, that adjudication somehow. So, yeah. Yeah. 
so there was so there was some conversation. I think there was still a, there was still one person for a while for like years that just was like gave me the stink eye during like department meetings because they were like one of the big dissenters of that idea. They were like, "No, I want my poetry to appear in this journal," and it's like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah." Here's a list of other journals you can have. So, um, but no, I think everybody was like, "Oh, okay. Well, you know what you're doing. You do it." More importantly, we don't have to. <laughs> so that's good. Although there was somebody, and I didn't really know this, a couple years later, there was somebody who was supposed to do one of those journals. And I was here like five years. And I, they got like, hey, well, when am I going to have my turn to do my issue of the journal? And I'm like, oh, no one ever told me that like you had had that and you were waiting for that. And I'd already put out like five annual editions of moon city review and they're like hey can i have a turn now and it's like oh wow i feel so terrible i hadn't known like that they assigned you and said that you were going to do this hmm. and secondly no yeah <laughs> like no this yeah. is what this is now i put a lot of time and effort you're, into you're building something journey. here yeah it's like i'm not going to take a break and be like well we're going to do this for a year i'm going to like i'm going to take a back seat like we're just literally not going to do that you mentioned well, a couple of things that I'd like to get to, um, both Smoke Long, but also uh, the idea of more people and classes uh, associated with Moon City Review. I was wondering, to what extent are students involved in the production of the journal? And kind of, I don't know, who else is on the team? Um, and one of the questions that I'm thinking of in particular is I see uh, some of the classes you teach um, are English 540 and 640 and English 551 and is it 691? Literary publication, small press production. So I'm curious, is the small press production class connected to the production of Moon City Review? Yes, entirely. That's good. Thank, I'm so glad that we got to that. Yes. Okay. So calling back to what I just said about like, yeah, when I, when I took over, it's like, we're not going to print our students. We're going to teach our students to print their work in other journals journals that will bring acclaim to their vita, help their confidence, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. But conversely, I need to make this, a, we, we need, I mean, this is what we're here for is we need to make students involved in this because this is not my vanity project where, well, I'm just going to do this in my office and shut the door and I'll <laughs> tell you when it's out. And where you can buy it. No, I mean, we need to involve students. And this is what I pitched is like the students are going to work on the journal which hadn't been really happening before, at least in the recent models of it. Um, the students are going to work on it. So we just kind of called people together to be on the staff. We called firstly all graduate students like, hey, who on the graduates, who graduate students do you want to work on this? Because they had a limited time and they were the oldest and maybe the most focused. Um, I, you might have heard there was a little cat fight right there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that was real. Good. Oh, you heard it too? Um, come here, girl. It's okay. We have an old lady cat who's like 18 and a couple younger cats and the younger cats kind of bully her. Oh, that's what's happening. So she just kind of sits by us. So she's sitting right next to me for protection. Yeah. Sometimes they just make a stab at the like tower and they like charge her and jump at her cats. Yeah. Cats. But anyway, um, so yeah, we got a bunch of graduate students Then we're like, well, we want to expand this. And eventually it was like, we need to expand this to get as many people involved. And especially since Dr. Moser has taken over and Dr. Wall has been the dean, it's like, well, that, that's what we need to do is we need to like 
involve as many students as possible. And that's never been a problem for me because I that's what I want this to be as a teaching. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here is to teach. So we need to do a teaching model of this. So we have students on the staff. And what we do on the fiction staff is we meet every week on Friday. I was the fiction editor for the first year or two. And then Joel Coltharp, who is an instructor in, in the department, he took over and almost immediately I'm like, well, you should be the fiction editor. Like you should take this over. I have a lot of hats on. I should give this responsibility to you. So he's been the fiction editor since like 2014, I would say. So he picks stories and we talk about three to four stories every week. And we meet and it's, it's, it's also the fiction staff is big and it's always been kind of big because it's also kind of this like creative writing social thing. Hmm. We meet on Friday afternoon at 3.30. So it's kind of like a weekend like wind down where the first half hour we kind of just kind of do that where we give like from 3.30 to 4 like, hey, let's talk about the week. Let's talk about topics and writing. Let's talk about what's going on in the department. Not like gossipy stuff, but like, hey, yeah, here's this opportunity coming up where it's like, hey, did you hear about this in the writing world? Like, so we kind of have that. And I think like that's kind of part of the appeal of it. And because it's a crazy time, it's like, why are people there on Friday afternoon? But it's, I've always thought it was kind of that, like, this is kind of a wind down and kind of a, like a community. That's like the best community event I think we have in our department for creative writers is this kind of let's get together and just informally meet and talk about writing in a different way. We're not talking about it in terms of your grade. We're not talking about it in like what you need to do. It's like, Hey, these, this is somebody else's writing. Let's talk professionally about it. Like you're a colleague of mine. Now you're on the staff. Let's have this conversation and let's let it be really loose and very laid back compared to like what you're used to doing in class. And I think that model has gone over really well. Like we have 20 people coming to these meetings on Friday at three 30, which is amazing. Wow. So it's, and we bring food, there's donuts, there's cookies there. Sometimes even pizza. Like I'm not going to say we don't bribe people. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, there's that. So there's that. And then we, then we, we go over the, the work and, the, and there's a poetry staff that meets and we don't get as many poetry submissions and there's fewer poets here. So the poets meet it like every other week. And Sarah Burge is the person who runs that. And, you know, everybody loves Sarah. The poets all love her. So she has her army of followers that work on poetry with her. And they do the poetry. And I usually don't stick my nose into that. I'm like, okay, I trust you. You're the professional poet. I'm just going to let you know if something doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. But like, for the most part, you have autonomy. Joel probably sadly, because I'm a fiction writer and I like to go to the meetings. I feel bad for him because he has less autonomy because I'm there at the meeting. Like he's at the front of the room and he has things on the overhead, like on the screen. And I'm kind of sitting off to the side and I'm like cracking jokes and like kind of sticking my nose in. So like if I was a poet, probably the magazine would look a lot different because I'd be sticking my nose in that instead. But instead, Joel's got to deal with me. So I feel bad. But uh, John Turner does the nonfiction and we get significantly less nonfiction than we do everything else. So he doesn't meet all that often. He meets like once a semester. And then we just started this issue. We started doing graphic narrative. Uh, that's a track that Jennifer Mervin started oh, yeah. teaching classes in, oh, I don't know, like eight years ago or so, maybe seven years ago. And that she's built that up where there's multiple classes. She teaches that in coalition with the art department. Okay. But we have been printing or trying to print graphic narrative and we don't get almost any submissions for that. So she doesn't really have a staff yet, but she could because there's a lot of people interested. But yeah. It's kind of hard to convince art people to give things to literary journals, I think. And that's mm. kind of what's happening mm -hmm. because artists are taught more than writers to not give things for free. 
that when you do art, you get paid for it. And where writers are like, I'll do anything for a line on Avita. It's like, I've written this like 4,000 word, like 400,000 words, sorry, 4,000 word novels, not very long, 400,000 uh, word novel that I've been working on for 20 years. And somebody's like, oh, I'll print it in my journal that 10 people will read and I'm not giving you any money. And like most writers would be like, okay, do it, 10 readers, whatever, yes. just to say that I got it published and it's on my, <laughs> we're, we're, we're writers are kind of sell their work out because we've kind of learned that like, well, good luck, like making lots of money off your poems and short stories. Like, so we kind of like attuned to like, not doing that, but artists are taught otherwise. So like we're, we, we don't get as many art submissions as we want. Cause I think it's so fascinating and this is kind of the direction things are going, but we're not getting a lot of submissions in graphic narrative, but Jennifer Mervin is in charge of that. So we, we have like instructors and professors kind of in charge of all the genres of the magazine, but then like it goes down, like we get as many students involved as we can. So all the graduate students automatically have an invitation, like, okay, you're a grad student here. You can be on the staff if you want to. Are they the, the people listed in the masthead as the assistant editors? Because I saw there are around 50 names before you get to the 11 student editors on the most recent edition. Yeah, the most recent edition is a little different. And this is why. The, the assistant editors are the people that come in and volunteer and do it. They have to go through. Graduate students are led onto the staff automatically where undergraduates are, they have to send in like a letter, like, well, why do you want to do this? Uh, what is your goal with being on the staff? And we kind of make them go through that process because for one, it's good for them to go through that process. Cause I'm like, oh, we'll include a curriculum vita. And I get 25 questions, emails back. They're what's like, please tell me what's a curriculum vita. <clears throat> I'm like, okay, so we're learning that. So they have to turn in a little application package with a letter, a curriculum vita and a small writing sample. And we generally try to take almost everybody unless they're like, you know, my intention here is to like gut the operation from the inside out. Like, unless they say <laughs> something like that, where we're all into like, yeah, like, hey, if you want to come in on a Friday afternoon or like on a Tuesday night and like read poems for us and talk. Sure. Okay. You know, we can only have so many. The only thing that limits us is the, the program, the software that we use to run the journal is called Submittable. And that costs money. We pay money for that every year. And there's only so many slots for an editor to have access to that. I see. Like right now where I think we're, we're on 50 or 60 slots. So we can only add so many people. We just can't add everybody because those people wouldn't be able to interface with the software because we only have so many slots. Hmm. So that's actually the only thing that limits the people that can read for the journal and be editorial staff members is because we could go up to like an unlimited amount of staff members which is the next phase up for the software, but it's like five times as much for the software. I see. It's like, we, we suddenly can't afford the software. You're either like, hey, 50 people can do this for this much money. That's very reasonable. Or you could have unlimited staff members for like the price you could buy a small staff. <laughs> okay. And I think it's probably good because you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen either. Like, it's good that we have like 20, 25 people in the fiction room talking about this. But if we had 50, it would be ridiculous. It's like a classroom. Like if you have anything bigger than like the 22 person classroom, it's just ridiculous. Like you can't really have a conversation because then there's 10 people that can hide off on the side and never get involved or how many yeah. people. So, so yeah, we want to include, and I mean, that's what Dr. Moser tells me. It's like, keep involving students. And I'm like, oh, that's not a problem. Like we want the students to be involved. So they, they have a hand in choosing what work goes into the journal they have opportunities to work on making the journal and, and laying it out. Um, 
yeah, it's all going like we try to get as involved as possible. We have GAs um, that work with us every year. Uh, I have two GAs now that kind of work with the press and the magazine, and they're doing a lot of interesting things. Mm. Um, sometimes they're not doing interesting things. It's like, hey, I need you to like fold 6,000 pieces of paper, <laughs> put them into envelopes. And oh, man, I forgot to get the self-seal tie. I'm sorry. You have to lick them all. So. Okay, so yeah, sometimes it's that, but it's also sometimes they they really learn what they're doing. Uh, we're gonna try to set up internships where like students can get undergraduate internship credit, so I can have more people kind of doing around the office. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with anything, when you're working on it and you're used to doing it, when you add people like students, say like, okay, interns, it's like then that becomes like me overseeing interns as another step. So there's like balancing that with like hey, this is due. I just need to do this versus, hey, let's like make this a better learning experience for as many people as we can. Yeah. But then I invented the class and getting to like your original question is English 540, 640. That's the small press production class. I think it was called Moon City Publication a couple years as a 565, 665 okay. uh, open topics class. That's English's number for, hey, invent a class and teach it and see if it works. Special topics. Special topics, yeah, that's 565. So it was fi- it's 540 now, but that's that's where we actually work on the magazine. Where it's, I'm like, hey, this is how we run the press. Hey, let's do a bunch of stuff. Hey, we're working on this book right now. This is what I'm doing. This is how you get ISBN numbers. This is how you buy a barcode. This is how a book gets up on Amazon.com and they sell it for you. This is how you acquire art. This is how you make a contract and have a writer send a contract. Hint, you have the university lawyers do that for you. And then you send them. Yeah, that that's a new thing. Like we had a contract that somebody made for us like 15 years ago and we we're using that. And that was one of those new regime things. Like when mm. Sean Wall took over was like, hey, so you guys send contracts out? Yeah, we got to have your lawyers need to, our lawyers need to see that. And what's interesting is the, like the main change on our contract was actually pretty good. The main change is like when writers sign their work over, they sign their work over not to like Moon City Press, which is what it used to say, or the Department of English or Cole or even MSU. They sell, they send their work over, they sign their work over to the Missouri Board of Regents. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've signed over a hundred contracts in my life for work. And I know I've never sent work, signed my work over to a state's board of regents, but that's like when you and I got hired, like the board of regents, like I got hired, they all said, congratulations. And like, when I left Bowling Green, I'm like, Oh, should I quit my job? Am I officially? And it's like, well, the board of regents has to meet and they meet once a month and they can't officially. And they're the ones that go like, yes, stamp we are approving that budget. Like I, that, I'm pretty sure that's how you got hired probably too. But yeah. So the board of regents of Missouri owns people's books Interesting. and the copyrights to people's books here. Yeah. I don't think for the journal, the journal contracts we have for Moon City Review, they don't own that because, because there's no money changing hands. The, the, the lawyers were like, Oh, no money's changing hands. And we don't really care. We don't need to rewrite your contract. But for the for the board of re- for the books that we publish that involve like cash prize money and royalties, mm-hmm. the board of regents owns that officially, and I have to send all the contracts to the lawyers, and so that's interesting. So that's that's one of the things we do. So I kind of like talk about that in class, but I, I just kind of answer questions because it is in the in that five forty class. It's kind of like, well, how does this happen? And 
Uh, the big question that comes up a lot in, in both that class and then the 551 class is, is self-publishing. It's like, well, how do you self-publish? And, yeah. you know, I admittedly don't know a whole lot about that at all. Okay. Because, you know, for a really long time that was like, oh, well, self-publishing, that's what you do when you're not talented and nobody wants your book. Like a, a vanity, was, vanity press. Type yeah. It, it's a vanity press. And there's an awful lot of that still going on. Okay. That's a lot of it too. But then there's a lot of writers that have forged real identities and have really legitimate careers where they have books that people read and they make a lot of money selling their auto published books. And so I have students that come in and say, well, how do I do that? How do I build like a self-publishing empire where I have like this really big reputation and I sell books and I'm like, I don't really know. I, I think it's DIY. I think it's all you have to have this DIY attitude where it's like you put this book out and you can certainly like have anybody print your book that you want to. Or there's this Amazon option where you can just go up and be an Amazon author and put your stuff up on the Amazon portal. Okay. Yeah. You could do that. But then from there on out, there is nobody at a press trying to sell that book. It's like, you want that book on, up on Amazon? You want an ISBN? You got to go find that. You got to yeah. go figure out how to do that. If you want to do readings, you got to go get those readings. And when you tell people like, you know, you have to overcome that. Like, oh, if you call like a Barnes and Noble, like, hey, I want to do a reading at your bookstore. Oh, and they look up your book. They're like, oh, it's a self-published book. They like hang up on you. Mm. That's just like kind of a reality that you deal with. So I even had a student in my graduate workshop last year where she was kind of like set on that identity of like having this, where she showed me examples of people who had these like completely self-published, self-published, self-publicized internet identities where they were kind of almost like influencers. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't even know how to begin yeah. telling you how to do this other than get somebody who knows how to make websites. If you don't make a really nice website and start putting your work up and make it really good where people want to read it. And then like be like a social media, just everything, like just make your whole life about mm. social media and selling it. It's like, yeah. Are you willing to do that? Because, and they're like, well, you know, and that person, I don't even know if that person has Facebook or Twitter to start with. Oh my. So it's like, you know, and I don't know that they don't, but like, I know that I'm not connected to that person on there. So it's like, yeah, that's how that happens. Because like when you publish with a press, like they'll do the bare minimum to make sure your book gets out there. So that's probably the biggest challenge I've had with that is like, you know, I have students that's like, yeah, I'm not really interested. I just want to self-publish. It's like, okay, we'll go do that. That's kind of my advice is, well, go, go ahead. Like, <laughs> no one's stopping you. Yeah. So. I've kind of, I was talking to someone recently about the the music industry, how competitive and crowded and oversaturated it is and how people are just resigned to the fact that you have to be as much or more of an entrepreneur uh, as you are a musician in order to make it. And that's certainly the case with self-publishing where you have to like yeah, be your own social media empire um, before you even get to the making of the content. Um, when it comes to self-publishing, I've seen embarrassingly bad versions of like obviously Xeroxed, you know, no no um, proofreading or typo corrections have happened on this book. And then there's the extreme opposite end where there's some some really good self self-published pieces that are um, sort of indistinguishable from. Uh, from it, something that came from a traditional press, at least to the untrained eye. And whoever did that, yeah, they must have had some experience of their own and or maybe hired other people to, to get it done, sunk a lot of money that they'll never make back into creating this 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 object, you know? Right, right, right. Because I, I think there's even Missouri State has a couple of people. I've seen articles about that where there's a couple of people who have broken through like on YouTube. 
Interesting. Where like where I, and I can't tell you what they do, but like I've heard about that. Where like oh, these two MSU students have like six million subscribers, and they make a ton of money on YouTube, and that's all they do, and they just have a a topic, and I don't know what that topic is, but they talk about it. I have a friend whose husband is like the third biggest like hunting outdoor sportsman YouTube person. He's like, (laughs) he's like a millionaire. Like he, he like, all he does is like go out and shoot like content of him, like talking about like guns and deer and hunting stuff. And he just did it at the right time. And he of course has a really good personality and you know, like he just has the right production people making the videos and he hit at the right time and he has millions and millions of subscribers that watch his videos and he right. makes, and he follows that pattern it's like my kids watch mr beast and I, I think that's the biggest youtuber i think that's the number one youtube thing right now and then yeah he just like the, he even has videos it's really masturbatory about like how he rose from like just being this guy that had these videos and like to like you know he has a, his like history of like how i became the like number one youtube sensation in the world and i make like seven million dollars a day on youtube hits it's like that's great you know no i if you think you're going to take english 540 and like learn that like no (laughs) i'm going to tell you how to make a book of poetry that probably will make no money (laughs) like i wish there was somebody who could teach that though like oh how do you become a media sensation it's like yeah like you have to it's trying to attract a lightning strike um which which is dangerous to do i i think it's interesting that people are like right out of undergrad set on self-publishing because, and this, I, my, my thought process is kind of leading to literary citizenship and sort of the community aspect of it. But because I, I can kind of understand how people would get jaded thinking, I send my work out, I send my work out, you know, I send my work out, rejection, rejection, rejection. I can't get into any of these journals. And so I'm just not going to play the game anymore. I'm going to put it out there myself. And I can kind of, sympathize with that thought process but at the same time there's um like the journals and their editorial processes are trying to help people like they're, they're looking for the, the 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 whole reason the journal exists is to publish work and the, the, of, you can't blame them for looking for the best work that they that they receive you know to to publish and um a lot of these journals say you know <laughs> please read some of the some of the work that we've published before before submitting which, which seems to me like the lowest possible bar of our, like, like the bar to entry is like participate as a reader before you submit so that you know the kind of things we look for. Um, but people seem like if they're not willing to do even that, then yeah, they're not going to get published in that particular journal, you know? And so there's sort of a, a citizenship element to it of like, you have to participate as a reader in order to learn what is even going on in this community. How can you take a part in a conversation that you've not listen to two, you know? Oh, no, that's, I mean, we, we talk about the other class, which is not a class I invented. It's a class that Sarah Burge invented right before I got here. It's uh, the literary publication thing where it's like, mm. we need to show people how to, how to publish, like, mm. and how to do that. Like that, that's a thing because it was kind of a thing that fell onto all the other creative writing classes, like workshop classes, especially the advanced ones was like, okay, well here, here's this, because I never learned that as an undergrad. I kind of went to school during a time where they were literally like, just would say, no, you're not good enough yet. Undergrads don't publish. Like mm-hmm. you need to write more. And then like maybe go to grad school and start publishing there or after grad school. Like if you're an undergrad, you're not supposed to be worried about that. Cause I think it was just more of a, 
they don't really want to do that. Like and take time and like learn how to do that. So <laughs> I read somewhere that someone said one should not presume to write a book until they're 50. Um. <laughs> sure. I think the, it's, I've heard the opposite. I mean, I think that's what poets, I think there's that poets have that legend. Like, you know, you're going to write your best poetry by the time. And then by the time you're 30, you're done because yeah, like yeah. the romantics, that, you know, yeah, that romantic, there's that whole Keats notion. It's like, yeah. no, like, I remember I remember hearing an argument at a bar between a nonfiction writer and a poet. And it was weird. It just like it was just this like thing. And I was just like sitting back like it's the meme with the guy eating like the popcorn and like staring. it's Michael Jackson, the guy. And he's like watching like I was just watching and this poet's like it's like, oh, yeah, you write nonfiction. That's good. It, he, he's like, my mother in law loves that stuff. It's so great. Like it's it's really good, which is like that's a dick. OK, like. Oh, my mother-in-law loves what you write. And he's like, oh, wow. He's like, yeah, poetry. It's like, is it really hurt you that like half your life ago is like when you peaked and you've just been like dying since then? <laughs> it was just, just like, I'm like, and I thought they were kidding and they weren't. And it was like, <laughs> like this is awesome. I'm going to be telling this story forever. And I am. That was like 20 years ago. And it's like, no, yeah, there isn't that. that like, don't write a novel to your 50. It's like, yeah, tell every every great writer that like everybody who's won right, like right. prizes and write great American novels. I don't think anybody's like, Oh, I'll start when I'm 50. I think there are writers who start like that and there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't think that's good advice to give the students. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I mean, I had two, two of my professors when I was in undergrad and wanted to go to grad school, two of them were like, Oh no, you don't want to go when you're 22, go do something for Go do something for 10 years. Go fail. That's that's other writerly advice. Go fail at something else and then come back to it. But I realized that's what they had done. Mm, yeah. Like they, they had both gone to grad school, one when they were like in their 40s and one when they were in their mid-30s. Interesting. Where they had gone and failed at something else. Not failed. I don't know what they did, but like they were much older. They're not still doing it. Anymore. Well, yeah. They were literally like, yeah, go be a waiter. Go wait tables for 10 years. Live your life. Like, you know, go, go get arrested or something. And I was like, what? It's like, what am I going to do? Like next year? Like, I'm not going to live with like, it's either I go to grad school or I move back in with my parents. Like you don't understand it's beer vending for me. 20, you know, 81 games a year at Wrigley and 81 at Comiskey. Like I can't <laughs> wait. Like, and there were, and there's a, there's a lot of vendors like that. There's, you know, as you might imagine, it's like, you know, it's like Jim at the office. It's like, Oh, here I am. That didn't work out. It's like, I'm a beer vendor. It's like, Oh, I went to college. And like, you know, it was looking like for a while there, I was like, well, maybe that's what it's going to be like. So then my other professor, luckily she was like, no, I went when I was 22. You should go. If this is what you want to do, you should go. Cause like, and then she literally said, what are you going to do? Go wait tables for 10 years. And I'm like, you've heard these other people give this advice, haven't you? And so lucky I listened to her. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, but as the rejection thing, and you know, I just really stress that in that class when I teach it, Sarah Burge teaches it about two thirds of the time. And I'll take a turn once in a while, but it's like, Hey, if you're in it this far where you're taking this because you're a major and a minor and you got to take this, you've already made a commitment. You majored in college. You're paying tens of thousands of dollars to be a creative writer. Like, you know, give it a fair shake, like try to get published, like be patient. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard for me. I get rejected too. But like, if you think the answer to that is going around and self-publishing something like that gratification is going to feel really good for a very short amount of time. And then it's going to run out very quickly. And then you're going to be the person that like started their publishing identity as a self-publisher mm -hmm. because yeah, you're going to place your stuff up on like Facebook and Twitter and 
Instachat and all the other ones, and you're going to share that. And everybody who you're friends with are going to give you congratulations like, oh, this is great. This is awesome. But then that's going to run out really quickly. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to feel good about it. And it's like, maybe you will. Like, maybe you are trying to build this identity. I don't know. I mean, that person that's trying to build that like self-publishing online identity, I mean, she's pretty staunchly, I'm not going to get published. I'm not going to spend my life waiting for people to like publish me and reject me. I'm not going to do that. I'm not at that phase in my life. Okay. Yeah. But like some of these 20 year old students I have, it's like, no, don't, I don't want to say self-publishing is giving up because I, I think there are self-publishing people who would argue with me and say that that's not what it's about, but it's like, see if you can go the other way first. Yeah. Or be really good with social media where you could build your own identity and sell that. Yeah. And in terms of going the other way first, there's just a sort of almost like a rhythm of like figuring out when are the, when are the, when are the submission periods? What are the styles? What is a cover letter? Um, what is submittable? And just all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, we, we do that. But like Sarah Burge and I have talked about that. That's that's not a 16 week class like teaching people how to use submittable and use ethical publishing, you know, how to write a cover letter, how to be ethical, how to do that, how to put together a manuscript. That's not 16 weeks. So the, I'd say that's six weeks at the most. And the rest of that class is what you, the term you use literary citizenship. I mean, that's, that's a big part of my syllabus is like, Mm. Hey, my students plan a reading, like, you know, because there's so many of them, they usually plan a couple where I split them up into groups. It's like, this is a big way you can contribute and be part of the literary society. Okay. You're going to plan a reading. So we have a couple readings every semester that take place that are planned by the students. I'm like, you can find a venue and like, you can find readers and you do all this, you know, just let me know if you need anything. And they do it and they do a really good job. Like the two readings last semester, one was at a bar up on C street and it was kind of like a, weird kind of like adults only like it started at nine o'clock and people were drinking and it was kind of very loose type reading and the other one took place in the library like in that lecture hall in the library and they had like Mm -hmm. cookies and punch and they decorated it was like right before thanksgiving so they decorated like for thanksgiving and they had like the fireplace youtube thing (laughs) on the overhead like so people and it was a very laid back like chill thing and both worked equally well they were both really cool events and i'm like you do that because we don't have a reading series here in town like nobody has like a bar reading series i really kind of push that like hey i've read at a bunch of reading series at bars like i wish somebody would do like a tuesday night reading series at like mud lounge or something yeah i'm like i don't have time to do that but like yeah like you know find a bar find a bar on c street that doesn't have anything going on on tuesday and the bartender watches like sports center yeah like, or, you know, the whole time, like where they're just standing there with nobody, like see if you can get 15 people in there once a month on a Tuesday for them or 20 people. And that might work, but just, just have events. I noticed, uh, you mentioned Jennifer Mervin, who I, um, who I spoke with for, uh, for the podcast, um, the very first episode, she has events frequently, um, at pagination bookshop. And so there, there are venues like that, that, have have readings or book launch parties or, or things like that and i think those those kinds of events are important yeah 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 jen's jen's probably as good at that literary citizenship as anybody um she's she 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 really gets it and really understands you know obviously she has a bookstore so there's it's not just literary citizenship it's also 
we want to stay open and, yeah. <laughs> you know, pay our bills and stuff. So, you know, there's, there, there's also that incentive for her, but yeah, even before she had the bookstore, she completely understood what that was about. And I mm-hmm. think you kind of have to, because there certainly are people in the creative writing world, you know, especially like in the academic world that like once they're established and, you know, and I'm sure that's in any department, they get their tenure. That's it. Like they're checked out. And that's really the saddest part about tenure in the academic system is mm. you know, I, I, I've done everything. I've done my part. I've done all that stuff. I'm kind of safe here now. And I'm just going to kind of just ease into like what I do. And, you know, in some ways that's good because I think those people earn the right to just say, Hey, I'm going to focus on my work. I need to be productive in this way because I've been doing things for other people to put on my Vita for the last 10 years or my entire career. Now I need to do that. Um, but then, then, okay. then I think there's, there's, there's other writers in the world that like, don't do that. Like I I've used that term literary citizenship with people and somebody's just like, well, stop, stop with that. What, why? They're like, I don't know anybody. Any- I don't know anybody, anything. Like, oh, this is I about see. me. I'm yeah. a writer publish me or don't publish me. But if you tell me that in order for my work to be published and for people to like my work more, I have to host a reading series or start a press, or I have to do this or this and jump through this hoop. No, it should be about me. Like you either want my writing or not. So there's kind of that attitude out there. And it's like that. We call that the selfish attitude. (laughs) It is because I I tell my students, I'm like, here, here's a, here's an assignment. It's like, okay, you're sending to all these literary magazines. I'm teaching you about all of them go subscribe to one, like find one that you're interested in and go and send a subscription. Even if you can read it online or you can go to a library or you can heck go to Barnes and Noble and find it on their magazine rack and read it and then put it back. Yeah. Do them a favor and buy a subscription to them for just one year. It'll probably be like $20. It'd be the cost of a book or maybe two books. Go subscribe to it and help them out. And I know a lot of writers and I try to do this is subscribe to five journals every year. And even if it's five different journals, just be like, Hey, here's a one-year subscription. Keep going. I've been sending to you. Here's a year. Hopefully this helps you keep going. Yeah. And some people think that's crazy. You know, it's hard to tell students that because I know they don't always have a lot of money. So it's hard for me to say like, you know, go spend $50 on subscriptions and they're like this. But I also don't use textbooks in most of my classes, except for Moon City Review, or if we have a visiting writer or something. Because I kind of do that. I'm like, here, go use that money you were going to spend on a textbook and go subscribe mm. to literary. Yeah, yeah. Because that's that's going to help you more than that. Because we can we can get you things to read, and I can I can buy one of these anthologies that costs like ninety dollars. But all those people in that anthology probably are so rich, or more likely, their estates are so rich, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay, go subscribe <laughs> to a literary journal or buy a book by a first time author or something like that. Let's do that. Yeah, no. We don't need to give Faulkner's estate any more money for a rose for Emily. Like we're good with that. He's good. They're fine. <laughs> okay. Or even a, a living author, like Joyce Carol Oates doesn't need any more money for where are you going? Where have you been? That's in every anthology. It's good that that's there, but like we can find that online. Go buy, go buy a book by a new author who needs that sale. You, uh, you did a project in, um, in 2016 um story 366 oh that yes um it's, yes i did it again in 2020 too and did it in 2020 as well and um so let me just make sure i'm getting that right do you you read a collection a, a day and wrote a review on it i wrote most of a I read most of a collection every okay day. and i and i try to make that clear like i do not read every book cover to cover but i get a good enough sampling of like five stories or so 
try to read more than half of it to get a good idea of what they do. Um, I don't know why I set that self up on, I wanted to do something like that in 2016. And it was like a couple of days before new year's. And I was like, I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to do this. And I did it. And I had like over 200 books that I hadn't read all the way. And that was part of it. It's like, I see. I have all these books that I've collected. They're in my basement on a bookshelf. A lot of them are signed. I spent the money. I want to read these books and force myself. And also, I don't want to be the person that my students come in and tell me about new writers. Like, hey, have you read this new writer? Have you read this new collection? And that had happened a couple of times. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to be the professor. I'm going to be the one that knows everything. So I'm going to read a book every day. Because I'm like, I could read a couple few short stories every day. So that, that went pretty well to begin with. And I can write an essay. And then if, if I look back in the archives, those early essays were very short and very succinct, like, hey, this story is about this. And then like what had happened by the end of the year is those metamorphosized into kind of personal essays that I did every day and tried to tie to the book. Nice. Which was good. Yes, it's yeah. nice. And that's a good product, except those took considerably longer every day. Okay. Than, okay, here's what this story is about. You should read this book. Here's me holding the cover in my hand. Good job. 45 minutes in and out. Boom. Like, then it became kind of like a two, three hour project every day. Well, in, in 2020, a lot of us had had that kind of time, you know. I remember, you know, I could tie myself to Story 366. I mean, I remember what book I was reading. I, I think the big announcement, because we knew it was crazy, because we, con- we, we canceled our conference attendance. We were supposed to go to the AWP conference in San Antonio. Mm the week before and we did that specifically because san antonio is where they let that person off oh and that person if you remember they went to like the mall food court and they stayed in a hotel and so everything we know from like hollywood movies and disaster movies is like it's the person at the mall it was literally like who goes through the food court and eats at like the sparrow and then the little kid and then it spreads and then everyone dies and dustin hoffman's there and blah 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 so like you know, like, so it was San Antonio. So we pulled out of that conference, but we didn't really know. And then I remember sitting on my couch reading my book and that's when they canceled the NBA that we literally like in the middle of an NBA game, they called everybody off this feet off the court. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, that's a big sports moment. <sighs> if you're not a sports fan was like the game is over and they made the announcement. Everybody needs to leave. Now the game is over. And they said the NBA has canceled the rest of the season, like right after that. Well, the cool thing about doing the personal essay was I was able to chronicle that. Like, oh, yeah, shit, man, the world's falling apart here. It's like, I guess I got my books, but I'm going to write about COVID. It's like, yeah, they just canceled. And then, then, and then spring break was like two days later. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, go to spring break and never come back. And I'll never see any of those students ever again. It was weird. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was teaching that semester and we, we, we got wind of it. Like, have you guys heard about this new, like, what is it? A flu? Like maybe we'll have, you know, uh, COVID days, the way that the way that we have snow days or something. And we just laughed. No one even thought that there would be a widespread worldwide <laughs> shutdown uh, at that time. But yeah, then the next week spring break. And then we were online for, for, you know, ever after we were second spring break, they gave us another week where they didn't know anything. Oh Yeah. Where so we had an extra week of spring break, and I remember I did. My house has never been in better shape. Like, yeah, it was a weird time, but yeah, you could you could read a book a day and write an essay a day, and it'd be like, okay, let's go rake leaves for two hours. Like, and then it's still only noon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of time. <laughs> well, um, 
There's one other question I, I, I have definitely have to ask you. Um, you mentioned earlier in our conversation something called Smoke Long Quarterly. Um, and this sounds really interesting, and I'd, I'd love to hear, just hear a little bit about it. Uh, I got hooked up with Smoke Long Quarterly. Smoke Long Quarterly, I'm really lucky to be working with because they're kind of the premier flash fiction journal. They're kind of the oldest one, and they're the premier. That's like where all the really great people do. So, yeah, the, the whole thing, the guy... Uh, Dave that started Smoke Long Quarterly about 20 years ago or so now, he, Smoke Long, it means it's a, it's a story that you should be able to read while you're out having a smoke, okay? Now, we've tried to disassociate ourselves somewhat from that smoking identity, like, you know, like the world tries to do. I don't smoke um, and stuff. I'll just throw, I don't know why I feel the need to put that out there for the podcast listeners. Like, oh, I don't smoke and I don't think you should either. And I think- they I'll be sure to put that in the intro. Mike just yeah. nasty, who doesn't smoke, is my guest today. It's like, I don't even think kids should buy those candy cigarettes. But anyway, so yeah, he said, kind of started with that, but I published a few times in Smoke Long Quarterly. Like that, that's kind of my area is flash fiction. That's what I do mostly. So I was in it a few times and whenever you have a story in Smoke Long Quarterly, you have an interview that runs alongside it where somebody interviews you as the author kind of about your story, et cetera. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'd done these like over the course of several years, like, oh yeah, I'd been in three times over the course of like, say six or seven years. So then one of my former students from here, from Missouri State, a guy named Andy Myers, he was a grad student of mine here my first year. He had a story in Smoke Long Quarterly. So the editor is like, hey, Mike, I see that this guy was your student because he mentions Missouri State. Do you want to do his interview? And I'm like, okay, because I've done a couple for them before. It's like, hey, here's somebody, here's here's this story you might be interested, in, or here's somebody who knows you. Do you want to do the interview? I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like fun. So I did an interview and they really liked it because I went like really kind of overboard. And then they then I was just talking to the editor at the time. Her name was Tara Laskowski. Her name still is that, but her editor. Anyway, uh Tara said, like, hey, it's like, wow, I wish. I wish I had more editors like this. It's like, too bad you're not running this. And I'm like, oh, is that a possibility? And this was around 2013, I think. I was here for about two years almost. And I'm like, I'd do that. They're like, oh, well, we're looking for a new interviews editor. So they, I'm like, I'll do it. Okay. And then I'm like, oh, can Karen do it too? My wife, Karen Crago, she had been in Smoke on Quarterly and she had done interviews for them. So she was like, so we'll do it together. So my wife and I did it together for a long time. So every, every issue, there's about a dozen writers in it. I contact them and say, Hey, we're going to interview your interview. You here's how this goes. And then I have a, a stable of interviewers that I go to be like, Hey, every other issue or so, or every third issue, do you want to conduct an interview? Like I'm actually doing that right now. I was just doing that this morning, like giving out the interview assignments, like here, here's your interview assignment. Like, you know, that's due a month from today. Oh, that's great. So yeah, so I work in that, but yeah, I'm lucky that I get to work with that magazine because it's kind of the premier place. Like that's where all the best flash fiction people work. So that looks good. That's also good for my like whole tenure and promotion thing. Uh, like that I just turned in for like, you know, I contribute to the, uh, the study and to the world out there. So not only am I doing things for Missouri State, but I'm contributing outside of Missouri State to my yeah. discipline. So I get to do that. Uh, it's fun. I get to work with really cool writers and I get to know a lot of people that way. They asked me if I wanted to read for Smoke Long Quarterly and, and help them edit and pick the work. And I said, since I do the Moon City stuff, I'm not going to, because it seems like I should not be doing both. Hmm. So that's fine. But I, I have done, I've done workshops for them. Like I've done like 
where I, I'll do like a week long workshop for them. And I've met some really talented writers that way. I've actually said, Hey, like, wow, that story you turned in for this smoke long quarterly workshop. I'd publish that in Moon City Review. And they're like, I would publish that in Moon City Review. And I've gotten some work for Moon City that way. Oh, cool. Found some talented authors and stuff like that. So yeah, that's a fun side gig that I do. And I'm working with really great people. Well, that was one of the questions I was going to ask was, um, was what are you working on now? Or what are you working on these days? But uh, and I know that's kind of what we've been talking about this whole time, uh, <laughs> Moon, Moon City and, and also Smoke Long Quarterly, but there could be any number of other projects you have on the various other burners. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do, I, I don't think I'll do a story 366 all the way again. That that really kills me like it is by the end. And plus, I don't have the books. So then I have to go find the books and that becomes really daunting. Um, and then my wife, I have, I have an open order to my wife. If I suggest like at the next leap year, again, in 2024, that I start that project, like you have every right to like tackle me and punch me until <laughs> I say, no, I'm not going to do that. It's good to have people like that in your life. Yeah. Because it's like, I can't, that takes a lot of time away from everything else. And I kind of become a wreck by the end of the year. Like in 2020, I was really a wreck by the end. And I didn't do more importantly, I didn't do any writing. Like I'm supposed mm. to be writing books as a mm. professor and an author. The, the the story 366 years really like, hey, I didn't do a lot of writing because I wrote a personal essay about somebody else's book every day. But yeah, I do the Moon City. We constantly, we have a poetry collection coming out next month, uh, a book called The Land of Stone and River by Claudia Putnam, wow. a Colorado poet. She won our 2021 Moon City Poetry Award. We do a poetry book every year that we acquire the title through a contest, which is how most small presses and university presses get their get their content. Okay. Um, we just picked a list of finalists for our 2021 fiction contest because we also do a short fiction book every year the same way. Okay. Uh, I have contacted those authors like, hey, you're a finalist. Is your book still available? And then we have to pick that winner in the next couple of weeks. And then we're, we're just about done with Moon City Review 2022, which should go to print in another week or so. Nice. But then like that all starts again. We get another poetry, <laughs> we get another fiction winner. We get a, another issue of Moon City Review 2023 has to come out. So that's like in the, in the 54640 class, that's like what I say. It's like, there really is no time off. Like this book's done, but Karen is the poetry editor of Moon City, the poetry series. She's already picking the next poetry winner. Like, and then we're going to start that book's production. It's like a constant cycle. Like I answer, like, and I kind of say, like, when you run a press, like you don't really have too many days off. Like I answer queries that writers send me on Christmas morning. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't answer them, but I get them. They're like, Hey, did I win that poetry contest? And I'm like, you know, it's Christmas morning, right? Like, <laughs> why are you writing about this? <laughs> and maybe I, and then I make like a history up in their head or like a little story where it's like, are they thinking like, oh, you know, what would be cool is if like I, I routinely like inquired about this poetry contest that I haven't heard about yet. And then they're going to say for some reason on Christmas morning that I won and it's going to be the greatest Christmas miracle story of all time. Like, <laughs> I, I wonder if that's what they're thinking when they write know. me with these queries like on Christmas. <laughs> it's like, did you ever get a student advisor write you like on a weird holiday? Oh yeah. It's like Christmas. It's like New Year's day. I have to sign up for classes. Can you meet later? It's like, no, no, no. I don't even like football, but I think I should probably go watch football. <laughs> Do queries, queries never even help anyway. Like people will get back to you when, after the decision has been made. Right. Right, right, right. Cause there's always, there's a longstanding editorial policy. If you need to know now it's no. 
So don't ever give us an ultimatum. So like writers, and I tell my students that, like, if you give me an ultimatum, here's your answer. No. And I don't care if you just wrote like the greatest novel ever written, like, or the greatest story or whatever. It's a no. Yeah, we have a lot of submissions to work through here. You know, it's like they just want to get published. They just want to get their work out there. And it's hard. And I get that because I'm a writer. I got a rejection yesterday from a place that had my story for a long time. And Hmm. I've always wanted to be in there. And they gave me like, oh, that was a close call. Send again. And maybe we'll take another year to get back to you and say no again. It's like (laughs) I just went through that. And it's really it's really frustrating. But publishing is hard. Yeah, that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Our Cole Conversations. You can follow the college on Facebook at msu.rcole and on Twitter at msu underscore rcole. And if you have an idea for Our Cole Conversations, or if you want to get in touch with me for any reason, you can send me an email at jhoward at missourystate.edu. Thanks for listening.